don't let your failures get you down. Take them as opportunities to learn and to grow and to realize that, gosh, you know, the next time I'm going to be better, we're all going to fail. And don't be afraid to fail. That's probably a big thing. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't say, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to take that next step. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Big news. The Business of PT podcast would like to announce its first sponsor, the PT Hustle. Make sure to check it out. Here's a short ad from our sponsor, and we'll get you to the new episode. What's up, listeners of the Business PT podcast? This is Dr. Kyle Rice, also known as Coach K, founder of the PT Hustle. And we help PT students and new grads make the final transition into their dream job or entrepreneurial life by helping them dominate the NPTE. We know the best entrepreneurs and PTs weren't necessarily the best test takers. And that's why the PT Hustle specializes in helping non-traditional students and those who have failed the MPTE before. So you can learn more about us at thepthustle.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast with my friend JT Moore. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Keith Coker with us. Keith, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to go over this episode. Um, normally, I do an introduction with all of the kind of accomplishments that everyone has done, but we talked about this before. It's going to be an extensive one, so we're going to go ahead and just go right into it and unpack it as we go. A little background for the audience. Um, Keith is the clinic manager for the site that I work at, um, and it will be. I'm really excited for this to be able to learn and be able to unpack all the things that you have going on in your career so far in physical therapy. Would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Well, as you said, I'm happy to do that. And, um, you know, looking at where I'm at right now, I'm a center manager for for Banner Physical Therapy in our Tempe sport location. And Tempe, and we've been here for 26 years. But the path here uh, started, uh, I got my education from Washington University in St. Louis. My uh, PT degree was was there, and I graduated in 1987. Moved to Phoenix from there, and uh, very quickly, in 1989, I started the um, Ola Grinsby Institute and started working on my master's in orthopedic manual physical therapy uh, and got my, my MOMT from the Ola Grinsby Institute, uh, and I graduated out, finished that in 1990, and then went into the, the, the doctorate program, the doctorate manual therapy the, through the institute which was in San Diego, California for another two years and completed that in 1992. During that time, once I finished my master's, I started teaching with Gilda Grimsby Institute and it's been um, kind of on and off, different things, uh, you know, over the last, gosh, several years, you know, 25, 30 years, you know, now um, doing that. Started off just teaching short-term courses and then taught some residency programs with them. But, um, you know, that's kind of my, my clinical background. And then, of course, the educational part of it uh, that completes that, you know, is just uh, the experience that comes with just, you know, seeing patients over a period of time. You know, you never definitely uh, stop learning and you realize what you don't know very quickly. 
and the institute provided me a number of things that, that uh, accented kind of the education that I had through the, the uh, Washington University, but gave me a lot more tools to, to do what I do today and kind of took me into the direction and kind of where I'm at today is because of that uh, advanced skill that I did back then. That's perfect. And then from a, from a um, kind of work standpoint, um, I started working with a company when I moved out to Phoenix in 87, opened my own practice with a, uh, a classmate of mine in uh, 1991 in Mesa. Started there, that quickly grew to where the um, athlete part of my career kind of took off through baseball. And with that being said, you know, looked at a place that we had to, you know, grow and uh, could kind of develop this program with these athletes to be able to do, you know, m my philosophy back then was, you know, work hardening was real popular. You know, people come in and they try to mimic what they do at work, and, and that was part of the rehab process. And we had a, a group of people that did that, but I kind of wanted to take that from the sports standpoint and said, gosh, let's try to mimic what we do from a sports standpoint so when individuals come to us we're just not working on certain components that we can do in the clinic but we can take them all the way you know back to uh, ready to play again you know I, I tell I still tell my clients you know I, I can't provide you know stats and and uh, competition from you but we like to get you pretty close and so grew that and that's where the Tempe office opened up in 1996 and we've just grown from there. Um, of course, the company then, when I opened this place up, we had merged with a company called Physiotherapy Associates, which was part of the Stryker Corporation. And a big mentor of mine, you know, uh, Jason Blackwood, um, was a big part of that progression. You know, grew clinics throughout the valley, throughout the different parts of the West, uh, kind of as a regional manager and then as a vice president. And uh, at that point, um, was seeing, you know, development and you know working with with uh, individuals which has become a passion of mine is just development of, of clinicians but that quickly grew into uh, you know a number of clinics and a number of uh, places and and then um, physiotherapy joined select medical uh, eventually there was obviously some things that happened in between there and then select a banner and that's kind of where I'm at right now yeah, very cool. And and honestly, I, I want to unpack that. That's a lot of information right there that we were, went over. Um, first off, we kind of talked about your educational career and a lot of the manual therapy mm -hmm. and gaining that deeper knowledge. Was that something that you'd always envisioned that you wanted to do initially, like when you're coming out of school, or did you realize some point along that process, hey, I really want to sharpen my manual skills? How did that come about? Well, the, the, the school that I went to, Washington University, was, was pretty manual, but not extensively manual. Um, Shirley Sarman was a big part of that. Um, uh, Dr. Rose was a big part of that. Uh, NIOSH. So there was a lot of orthopedics involved with that, but from a manual, hands-on standpoint, it wasn't really heavily manual. So when I got out of school, I understood movement. I had some great mentors, but my hands-on techniques were not where I wanted it to be. So um, I asked around and I said, hey, you know, uh, when it's interesting, because when I got out of school, when we, look at, when we looked at jobs, you know, we didn't look at, a big part of what jobs we took were like, well, whoever's the best con ed, because everyone always, it was always stress. You know, you gotta, you gotta get someone that allows you to develop after you're out of school. So um, that's kind of a big part of our interview. It wasn't the biggest amount of salary we could make. It was like, gosh, you would let us go and take these courses. but. So coming coming here um, was asking you know where where do I go you know where who who do you recommend and everyone the big thing then was was either Stanley Parrish or Ola Grimsby and they, back then they had five day courses where you went for five days and even some of them were seven day courses so 
I took my first five-day course with with Ola and uh, in San Francisco, and um, it was just amazing. Just the, that was at that point I realized how much I didn't know, and, and you know his approach is is unique, um, coming from from a Norwegian, uh, abrupt, but you know for me it was like okay that's that's the direction I want to go, and that's where I need to get the skills so that I have the tools to help people because you get a little frustrated thinking gosh now everybody responds according to the book, but you just realize that there's a number of things you need to do. So that was kind of the start of my. I guess specialization into into a particular area and uh, kind of growth from a clinical standpoint. That's perfect. And then from there, also, you said that you eventually opened up your own clinic with your classmate, and you, you opened it. And did you always have a sports setting in mind? Did you always kind of have that in PT school that I want to open up a, a clinic that specializes with sports, or how did that all go about? Yeah, you know, I was um, I loved sports growing up. In fact, when I first got into college, I didn't know what physical therapy was. In fact, I was at Texas A&M for a little while to be a veterinarian. And that's when I learned about physical therapy and decided to kind of pursue that. And it just one thing led to another. And next thing I know, I'm at WashU. But um, I always loved sports, you know, and I always wanted to have that. In fact, our first clinic was called Mesa Sport Clinic, which we kind of just have carried on throughout this whole kind of theme of that's what we want to do, you know. Um, and sport was basically stood for sport performance and orthopedic rehabilitation therapy. So we thought we were real creative in just calling it sport. And so that's kind of been what I've always wanted to do. That was my focus and, and, I, and um, was, was something that uh, I desired. You know, I loved exercise. I loved, you know, kind of the active individual. So, but I just didn't know what direction. You know, I, I loved football growing up. I thought that was where I was going to go. But obviously um, there's other plans that kind of come in, into, into being that you don't think of. And just the way that your path is sometimes is not necessarily as you planned it. Yeah. And that's uh, very, very true. A lot of people, they have that like additional goal in mind but they open like opportunities open up and they go through those and I wanted to know now obviously I mean we're in your office right now recording this and we have a ton of juries all around a lot of a lot of different sports but a lot of baseball how did you end up finding that niche into the baseball specific population how did that all go about well I wasn't looking for it so what happened was when I was transitioning from my first job to opening my practice I went out and started you know, going and just doing some some work at a, a, another clinic, and um, I had graduated. I'd finished my first master's of manual therapy, and you know, obviously, spring training is huge. And um, I had developed some relationships with doctors, and kind of marketing my manual skills. You know, and the benefits of manual therapy and range of motion and and strengthening, and you know, a big part of the OLA program is not just the manual hands-on part; it's the scientific exercise that basically goes along with it. And so, really, was just seeing some some success. But I got a call uh, from an organization saying that they had a player that um, what came into spring training had rotator cuff surgery in the off season, or at the end of the last season, and he'd come into spring and, and they thought he was going to be ready to play. But when he when he showed up, he didn't have enough range of motion in his throwing arm to throw. He didn't have the strength in his throwing arm to throw. So. They'd heard that, that I had dealt with this, or that was kind of somewhere my specialty. Wanted to know if they could send him over, and if I would work with him and see if he could, we could, you know, get him ready for the season and, and being able to to um, to start, which is what he they want to, or they're going to find someone else. So, anyway, long story short, um, worked on the player and um, got his range of motion back, got his strength back, and he started the season at, at third base. And it just so happened that that player was Paul Molitor who's now a Hall of Famer and a well-known player. And, you know, that just kind of led to another player from that organization that they sent over because, they, you know, 
the results were there. And then it, and then it eventually led to um, different organization, another organization. So our clinic was really close to where the, back then the California Angels spring training was out in Gene Autry Park. And they had some players that were, they needed rehab with. And um, the doctor from that team, Dr. Yoakum called me and said, hey, I've got a Tommy John. You know, at that point, I didn't know what a Tommy John was, you know, but um, stiff elbow, you know, back then they casted them for four weeks and, you know, by the time you got them out, they, you know, they were really stiff and, and so you had, it was a lot of manual therapy that, that, that could be beneficial. He goes, hey, I'd like for you to, you know, see if you'd work with this guy, you know. So I said, well, I've never done one before. He goes, well, you know, I'll walk you through it. And that's Dr. Yoakum. That was, you know, that was just him. And we've had a great relationship until he, until he died, you know, uh, a few years ago. But he was kind of opened the door to allowing me to use my skills even though I didn't have the experience I wasn't a baseball guy you know but the results were were what they were looking for and this hands-on approach in, in in sports was was unique you know sports was stretching and exercise you know ice and stem I mean some of the great sports medicine centers when I got out of school that's what they did you know they stretched you they did exercise and you had ice and stem but there really wasn't that hands-on approach to sports medicine so I kind of found an interest of that bringing that into the sports arena. I mean, now it's there; it's 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 all over. But you know, back then that was a rarity to to have that approach. And not that the guys weren't successful getting guys back, but there were some situations that were, um, I think, more appropriate and uh, responded better to to hands on. And it just started that kind of that that kind of that that movement of hands on and you, you know uh, type of thing into the sports arena. So. That organization started sending me individuals and then other organizations and so I started consulting. I guess they called me consulting when I would work with them. The Milwaukee Brewers were one of the first ones when I dealt with Paul Molitor and the Anaheim Angels or, or California Angels at that point. And then just other organizations throughout Major League Baseball. Um, I was also teaching at that time, so I got invited to teach at their, they had an annual conference, the, the Curlin Job and, and Dr. Yoakum had an annual conference, so I started teaching every, he'd asked me to come teach about every other one, and I don't know how exciting it was for, for them, but it was exciting for me to, to share my knowledge of manual therapy and, and to develop um, some of the things and just to get, you know, relationships with different teams and then you know that kind of grows you know relationships with players grow it's a small community when you get in the baseball community and you'll find that word of mouth you know kind of spreads and players are going from one team to the next so if you've had if they've had a good experience you know they kind of take that with them and then um, you know we we even started getting people from around the world you know Japan some players from Japan came over they started coming over consistently for rehab and then for training because we incorporate training into our regime we feel like that's a big part of what we do and um, so it just ex exploded from there to where all of a sudden we quickly grew out of our Mesa location because we were just a you know a small facility and, and when guys needed to play catch they were out in the dirt parking lot uh, next door and I'm like there's got to be a better way to do this I mean, these are you know at that time million dollar players was a lot yeah, we got to have a better way to do that. So, hence, kind of how we decided to do this this Tempe location. Yeah, and just, I mean that was that's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. That's really cool to hear the story of initially just having a, a vision in mind, but then you had those opportunities open and step through those. And like you said, those results that you had were so positive that they continued to 
bring in that self-referral system because of that. Um, and then with that, you could mention at the end the facility. Explain a little bit about your vision with this facility. I feel like it's a pretty unique one. Um, it has a lot of different things to offer for athletes. Explain your process in why you created it and how you created it the way that it is. Well, first was location. You know, our, our draw from, from our clientele was coming around the, the valley, you know, from east to west north to south so we, we decided first we got to find a place that's very central and so we looked at where that would be and of course an, an airport's always a central location so we kind of looked around Tempe thinking that would probably be a good um, idea of where to look and start and then we just kind of honed it in where the freeways were so the location was the first just so it was convenient I mean um, we knew that that was going to we weren't going to be a situation where people were going to drive to just because we were in their neighborhood we wanted it to be a destination you know where they you know, they came because they were referred and, and that we had a special um, reason for them to be there. And so, but yeah, we still wanted obviously the general public to be a part of it and um, different levels of sports to be a part of it. But the facility's design itself was we needed something that had a, a, obviously a larger facility so we could do different things in it. Um, and so we kind of wanted an industrial type building, but we want, didn't want it in necessarily an industrial community. And so, and. Uh, we just happened to run into this abandoned movie theater that had opened in, in the early 70s and had recently, in the early 90s, ended up closing. And this is a popular movie theater here in the area, but it was, it was we walked into it and, you know, of course, it's just, it's, it's abandoned and um, not in the greatest of shape, but just the vision that we saw from the, where the building was located and what it had um, was really what we were looking for. The concept was, kind of like what I brought up earlier, was that sports hurting. We want to be able to do things that they needed to do sports in general, they needed to do on the field to compete, you know, kind of like work hardening, mimic that that job or that work. And, you know, baseball is a job, so um, it is work. So it, we wanted to be able to have, so we wanted an indoor mound um, guys could throw off of. We wanted an indoor sport court so they could do layups, jump shots, you know, movement skills and be able to do outside facility, outside things. Now the outside didn't come till, till a different phase, but we knew we were gonna develop an outside component. And initially the outside was the back big parking lot that was, was empty, um, kind of using that to do our outdoor stuff, but uh, it's, it's grown into a, a turf field now and you know uh, a separate thing. But we wanted to mimic that, we wanted to be able to mimic that. So when we send someone back to a team to play, we can say, yes, they can jump, they can run, you know, they can throw, you know, 90 miles an hour um, on, on, a, on a mound. They can do those things as best we can. So we can't provide stats to competition, but we can go through all the functional things. From a, from a, also, we realized that we wanted to separate those movements. So standard clinics, you know, you had guys doing side-to-side -side movement, jumping amongst someone who maybe is a post-op ACL or a rotator cuff. You know, it's kind of like you're just, it was kind of chaos when you get with sports and kind of mix it with the general population. And, you know, you get different age groups and stuff. So um, we wanted to be able to separate that and different components so that anyone that was coming in felt comfortable in the environment they were in, what was around them, and the environment was controlled and uh, supervised. So, hence, the facility we have now is, you know, 16,000 square feet, and we've got, you know, indoor facilities as well as outdoor facilities. We've got training areas, and we've got kind of areas that, that accommodate in the general population, the you know, the, the general orthopedic stuff, but we also have that ability to accommodate that, the, the athlete from different levels, you know, whether it be, you know, um, baseball, football, um, 
you know, uh, frisbee golf, you know, a number of things. But uh, and then also the worker, you know, being able to the fireman, the, the the policeman, you know, that needs to come in and mimic what they do, and we try to be able to do that and provide that overall. Um, but ultimately, the building was is important to have those capacities. But the staff and the personnel is what makes it makes it happen. You know, we're only as good as the people that we have. I mean, there's a lot of nice facilities out there, but uh, I'm just real proud of the people that we have involved with our with our rehabilitation and our training. Um, they make it special. There we go. Yeah, thank you for for sharing all that. And yeah, that was something that definitely coming into the facility. It's impressive to be able to see all those things it has to offer. Like you said, it, it is able to really provide the athlete the opportunity to get back to as close as, as possible to those work-specific activities, like those athlete-specific activities. Um, and another thing that you mentioned early on that I wanted to kind of unpack as well is that you mentioned the hands-on approach was something unique that you were bringing to the game at that time. And all at Grimsby Institute obviously teaches a lot about the manual skills, but also the exercise per prescription and progression. Could you explain a little bit of the value that r you felt has really helped you and your career from those two kind of aspects, the manual side and the exercise prescription side with the Institute? What are some of the big things you learned with that? Yeah, you know, the, the manual side is kind of to, build, to, to regain motion, um, correct movement, correct physiological motion. But like anything else, anytime you, you gain movement, you, you have the responsibility of, of uh, being able to, to use it and control it now through muscle function. Um, and you know, really the question is, I always try to ask myself is why am I doing something? Whether it be, you know, why would we use a hot pack, an ultrasound, but you know, why are we doing, you know, in an exercise standpoint, when you're talking about exercise prescription, there's different functional qualities of exercise. You know, why do we do three sets of 10? You know, why not four sets of 10? Why not three sets of 15? Why is the number important or is it important? Why does it matter whether you're doing it on a piece of TheraBand or a pulley apparatus? You know, why does the number rest make a difference? And, and I think the, the part that the Ola Grimsby brought, and, and they, they basically combined their manual program with what they back then was called MET, Medical Exercise Therapy, another Norwegian, Arvar Holten, was a big part of that. And he basically looked at making exercise a science. You know, um, when someone's injured, you know, when you're, well, let's just take it to medicine, you know, when, when someone's got some aches and pains, you know, not everyone's just given the same dosage. You know, not everyone's given three sets of 10 or, you know, 300 milligrams. It really depends on what the, what the need is. And so looking at exercise, the important part then was, well, why am I doing and, and why should I be doing certain reps and, and certain rest periods and certain range of motions and certain things like that? And that's where the step part of my education that came through the Ola Grimsby Institute, the, the, they called it the scientific therapeutic exercise progressions, really answered a lot of those questions. You know, the functional qualities anywhere from you begin with coordination, you know, and then you've got you know, vascularization, and you've got strength and endurance, and you got pure strength. You know, those are all separate things that are trained with different things. And our, our bodies are built with different muscle types. Some of them are built for strength and movers, and some of them are built for stabilizing, and they, they have different energy requirements. Um, so whether they're glycogenic or ox, you know, oxidative systems, we can't train them all the same. So really just gave me an in-depth scientific approach in what range of motion should the, the resistance be the greatest, you know? You got the link tension curve, you know, type of things. And then um, being able to figure out, well, where are you at in there for each individual? How do you dose each individual? 
you know, you can't, someone with a rotator cuff, you can't say, how much can you lift once? And they just can't do that. So you gotta be able to calculate where they're at and how much weight is appropriate for them based on that functional quality that you're trying to, to establish. And so that is where this, the exercise component, I thought was, I mean, it's, it's a game changer for, for what we do and, and why, you know, I, I think why people continue to come to, to, to us is because the apparatus that we use is important and um, the science that we bring behind that. And we, we, we've been, you know, really trying to teach that. And um, it's um, something I think patients have shown to be very beneficial in being able to understand that. And um, I think there's appropriate situations for different apparatuses, but being able just to understand why, and not so much what you do, it, you know, as long as you have a reason why you do it, and there's a science, a, you know, scientific reasoning why you're doing what you're doing, and you can answer those questions, and I think you get better results. Yeah, well, I, that was, I don't, you just explaining that and kind of unpacking that, that is, makes a lot of sense. And those are things that we get, I feel like in physical therapy school, like we get bits and pieces of those things, but not to the extent where I would say I feel like adequate or super confident in those skills. I know this is kind of putting on the spot, but are there, do you have like a certain um, patient case or anything that you, like if you have a, a patient with a rotator cuff or a certain activity or, or patient that you have, could you walk us through some of those progressions and thoughts with the different exercises and the prescribing of them? I don't know, I, I, it was really interesting how you explain those things and just understanding the science behind how you prescribe those things to them. Yeah, well, let's just say a typical rotator cuff after surgery. You know, obviously, you're you're worried about tension, so you got to you got to be able to um, understand how much tension, because tension creates deformity. So when when tissue is repairing, especially the first six weeks, the the bonding that holds tissue together is 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 lack of a better word, you know, kind of like very weak, hydroxylated they call it, but it's very, you know, it's easily deformed. So tissue is laying down, you know, and so it's important that you you stress that tissue because you really, to get tissue to lay down, the optimal stimulation for, for tissue uh, repair is tension, but the thing that can, can break it down is, is too much. So, and just say for instance, from a, from a scientific standpoint, you know, I want to be able to create tension, but I don't want to be able. To, I don't want to create deformity. So, I need to know how much tension that tissue can tolerate. Um, so, when we're dealing with a post-op, you know, we're going to use light resistance. Uh, where, well, first we're going to start with coordination. We just want movement around physiological motion. And when you look at that scene, I want someone to be able to raise their arm up overhead without substituting. And you know, we know then that the mechanics of the shoulder are working well. And to coordinate that motion, you know, you, the weight of the arm may be too much. So you need an apparatus that assists their motion so that, you know, if the weight of their arm is five pounds and they can't do it correctly, we gotta make that arm weight two and a half pounds. So we'll, we'll give them an assist to do that. And that's the, the first progression of exercises. You may be in an assistive situation. Once they can do it against gravity, then we can start, you know, loading that. But then the next phase, of, of tissue healing, once you've got correct movement, is is first just vascularization, blood blood supply, you know, and that's something that's real important. So you really want exercise that produces um, blood flow and doesn't restrict blood flow and doesn't create too much deformity. So that's where higher repetitions come in. But you know, we want to know what if I'm having someone raise their arm up against resistance, or let's just say have them do external rotation against resistance. I want to know that if I'm going to dose them at two pounds because I want 25 repetitions, which to me is the, you know, 
going to stimulate that vascularization 25 to 30 based on the Holton curve, then I want to know that that two pounds is all the way through the motion. And I want to know that the greatest resistance for that is that, you know, follows that length tension curve that's just in that mid, little beyond mid range. So that I want that tension to be greatest for that. So I look at the apparatuses that we can use, you know, and, and, and if, you, if you're saying, for example, TheraBand, you don't know. There is no measure on TheraBand that tells you how much you're pulling. So depending on what type it is, it doesn't even matter the color because colors vary and, and how much they got stretched out. But I know on a pulley system that I know that if I start with two pounds at the beginning, I'm going to have two pounds at the end. So, so that's kind of that, that next progression is to know that and then to have that repetition match that in the number of sets because really what regains a neurological, a neural pathway is repetitions, you know. Um, from childhood development, we know that, you know, certain simple movements take 5,000 repetitions. Um, from a sporting event, it may take, you know, four or five times that much to really re-coordinate that movement because, um, so, I need repetitions to, to start doing that. You know, if I'm doing three sets of 10, I want to get 30 repetitions. How long is it going to take me to get 5,000? I'm throwing out these numbers just based on some science stuff, but mm. they, they kind of fit into what we, we teach. So I need to get them doing more. So I need to be getting them doing, you know, more like three sets of 25, three sets of 30, and then I've just sped up that process. And I've kept the resistance so I know that I'm, I'm, I'm causing tension, but I'm not more tension than I want in getting deformity. So that's that kind of that next phase, you know, and then I, then we need to build some endurance. So we know that different muscle groups require endurance. So your 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 movers, you know, the move, muscles that you see are really movers. They're they're something that, that needs more strength. But your stabilizers, the deep muscles that control joint motion, require endurance. I really don't care what my rotator cuff can do once; it has to perform over and over again as I'm doing activity. Um, so an endurance type of thing requires oxygen. So I want to stimulate the oxidative system. So that's you know, a repetition set that may be more like 15 to 20 um, to build endurance. And then eventually, you know, once I get that endurance and that underlying tonic system going, so we've got, first we've got the joint mechanics working well, then we've got the tonic system working well around it, I'm think, talking about a rotator cuff, then we can start working on the movers. Now we don't want the movers to, to, to you know, fade away, but so we, we kind of work on them, but we don't, we don't push them because we have to have those two components to maintain good good mobility. So then once those two are done, then we'll go back to our movers, you know, our deltoids, our pecs, our lats, and those where you can get your, you know, your three sets of 10 makes sense for strengthening uh, of those of those components. And then, you, you know, so we, we kind of start with isolated coordination, increase some speed, because coordination is speed specific, go into vascularization for repair. Once the repair phase is done, we work on endurance. Mm -hmm. And then once we've got the, the tonics going, then we combine the movement of the tonic and the phase, because that's really a functional movement. And the patterns then are more become what we call more functional. Um, I know this will seem long-winded, but you ask a good question. Um, and I think the problem that I see in a lot of situations is we go from um, initial to functional movement too soon, and we forget that that tissue has to repair itself and the tissue tolerance. And that's where science comes in. Uh, a person that I learned a lot of my um, kind of histology from was Savio Wu and Freddie Fu. They were big hist you know, histology guys and they just basically told us that you know, you can't just ask the patient how they're feeling and if they say I'm feeling fine then move them to the next level. You have to understand certain things about what's underlying because the tissue has to be healing. And we know that, we know that tissue healing 
takes time, so we have to incorporate that into our regime first, and then once we get tissue healing done and tissue tolerance established and movement around the right axis stops, then we can start working on function. And so I think the movement kind of been kind of missing that sometimes. And that's where a person gets ahead of themselves and starts having tendonitis as things don't go well and they're more complicated. So I think following that regime and being able to explain that to a patient that wants to know why he can't do more because he feels like he can do more is really important. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer to a, a one simple thing, but it, it's, it's just how complicated things can be sometimes, um, but simple, you know, if you just understand uh, what's going on. Yeah, honestly, like listeners, I really hope that you can go back and just rewind that part because out of, as far as a clinical application, a lot of, I mean, a lot of listeners when I intended making this are for new grads and, and to me that right there was so much knowledge and so many things to unpack that I really hope that everyone can go back and listen to that. I think that was maybe the most or if not one of the most clinically significant things that have been taught on this podcast. So thank you for sharing oh. that. That was, that's awesome. That was, really well, I won't take credit for it. I take credit, you know, that I was taught that. So, you know, and that's why I started teaching others and in, in, in that situation, because I, I felt so, you know, um, it was just eye opening for me. It was, it was, it was, it was a game changer for me clinically. And just, and, and not that I expect to get everyone better, um, just kind of a side story, Dr. Yoakum, I worked with him for, you know, started working with him for patient after patient. We got a great relationship and I was, he was sending a lot of his patients here from around the country, from around the world, because um, he was really well known from a shoulder and elbow baseball guy. So I was so blessed to learn from him, but one of the, the best lessons I learned from him is, you know, when he would come in and we would see, you know, he'd fly into Phoenix from, from LA. And because this was such a spring training baseball site that during, especially during spring training and, and, and things that players from all different organizations would come in to, to see him. And he'd, you know, fly into, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon and we would see, you know, maybe 30 patients in three hours. And, you know, he'd either fly out that day or if he didn't, we'd go have sushi and vodka, which that was one of his favorite things to do. And I think that's why uh, he told me one time, he goes, that's why I come here is to have, you know, <laughs> have sushi and vodka with you. But um, he was just that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But one thing, I, you know, I would get frustrated because he'd come in sometime and I'd have some, I'm like, you know, I'm just real frustrated, you know, about this person. It's not, it's not, you know, they're not doing, you know, the elbow's not, the range of motion isn't where I want it, you know. He's six weeks and we should have this and he doesn't. He just looked at him one time and he goes, Keith, one thing you got to remember is he says, you're not going to get them all better. You're just going to do the best you can. But, you know, if you're doing that, they're, they're not all going to get well. So, and that was just gave me confidence to say, gosh, you know, keep trying. Mm-hmm. But don't don't get frustrated and don't get down on the fact. But that the things that don't go well, I would say the, the elbows and the shoulders that don't go well taught me more than the, the majority that do. Yeah. So that's yep. that's a great way to learn. I mean, it's it's tough while you're going through it, but when you get to the other side, you've picked up something that'll help you for the next one. Yeah, that's that is that's awesome. Like, like and I love that you're able to share that. And I feel like I mean, there's an, it's a baseball analogy, but if you learn more from a strikeout than from a home run, like you you learn how like those things are are so important to be able to to learn from. And yeah, they're going to be frustrating in the moment, but the experience that you gain from them is so vital. Um, ben, thank you for sharing those. That was, I mean. I'm sure we could dive into other kind of case specific ones and it'd be a lot like a lot to learn um, but thank you for sharing those and you mentioned you kind of highlighted a mentor there um, with Dr. Yoakum. could you explain the importance I think that was a great gem already that you shared um, but other mentors that you've had throughout your career and what have been some of the most important things that you've gained from them that you've taken away from from their experience 
Well, you know, first and foremost, I would say um, Ola Grimsby. You know, I, I had a great opportunity to, 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 to learn directly from him. I mean, when you learn from Yoda, the master, you know, manual therapy, and him and Stanley Parrish were both really good, and, and both programs have been great. And I th- he, they helped so many people. But for me, being able to learn directly from, from Ola, not just – I'll never know what he knows, but I, I, he's taught me so much. And he is basically, you know, the mentality was you, you, never, you never stop learning. You know, um, you just, it's an ongoing thing. And, and one of the things that he said, your challenge in your career is, is not to know what we teach you, but to, to know all that you can beyond what we teach you. Um, and that was the part two, the, the doctorate program that was, was, he goes, you know, we're going to have curriculum, but, you know, your job is to go out and learn as much as you can beyond this. So um, just a great mentor and just how he was, kind of how he approached things clinically, how he looked at, um, you know, um, driving us to to know more, to learn more, develop more tools to help patients, and just the, the comprehensive approach to to a person. You know, it's not just a, a a rotator cuff; it's a it's a person. It's a personality, and it's not just what you're dealing with. It's what's the cause of that. You know, uh, what's nutrition? You know, there's a number of different things to be able to. You know, goes along with that, and that, that makes all every rotator cuff I see or every Tom my John I see is unique because it's attached to a different person, a different personality. So that was just just huge. You know, it really just um, opened up and then giving me the tools to 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 help the majority of them, mm-hmm. and and a, and a reasoning why because there's there's probably a little frustrating. You know, it's nice when you you know when you accomplish something, but then you look back and go, how did I do that? That's what you know, like I. But you, you like to think that there's some point that you 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 purposely kind of took steps to get to that point versus it just oh my gosh I, you know it was a good lottery ticket for me today <laughs> maybe the next one you know we'll see and that that's kind of that's unsettling yeah. and it gives you that little bit of confidence so from from that standpoint Ola Ola was my first really mentor that uh, you know and he was he was you know rough on the outside and but was very direct and, and either you were going to take that and build a fire. And say I need to get better, or you were going to get depressed and let it, you know, take you down a rabbit hole that, you know, gosh, I can't, you know, more frustration. So, you know, he was definitely, you know, for me that was a fire that he just continued to light because he just continued to show me what I didn't know and the things I couldn't, you know, accomplish unless I kept kept going, you know. And then, you know, Dr. Yoakum was just amazing and you know just that relationship with someone that you know as a surgeon as a great surgeon as a great person um, who allowed me to do what I do and use my tools because back then I said manual therapy wasn't huge his thing was just do what you do um, he I would say what do you, you know, is there anything in particular that you want you know he had some advice obviously based on what he saw but he would just say then just you know use your use your clinical judgment and that's that's huge for us I think it's a big responsibility but it's 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 obviously gives us a lot of opportunity so he was just great in fact he just allowed me to I understood what it was like to work with a good physician that understands physical therapy and the benefits of physical therapy and you know uh, and you hear a lot of them now say that you know you know the doctors will say gosh I do only so much but it's really up to the physical therapist um, to to make it work and so he was just someone that just continued to Give me opportunities, and it was great to work with, and um, um, 
relied on me to, to really grow from a professional standpoint, you know, in the community of baseball and sports in general, because kind of his, his reputation was, was beyond baseball. But, and then from a business standpoint, you know, I think at the end of the day, you have to run, you know, you have to run good clinic. Jason Blackwood, who was a striker corporation, really just showed me how to kind of, you're good clinicians, we're good physical therapists, but you know, when you're, when you're in private practice especially, or when you're in any situation, there's, there's certain things that just have to run from a, from a uh, business standpoint. And he was just real good and just like, giving me that opportunity and kind of bringing that in, because that was the part I didn't have. So he sent me to Harvard Business um, School, not to Harvard, but to, to the, they had a uh, thing for the, the Stryker Corporation had a training that was at Harvard. So we got to go there and spend a week in Harvard and get educated on different types of things. And that was kind of an, a neat thing that kind of brought um, to perspective this kind of this whole thing. If I'm going to run a practice, I have to be financially responsible so my staff continue to have a job and, um, and then um, kind of go from there. But um, ultimately then from Ola, back to Ola, and uh, this is a huge thing for me was he taught me to teach others I mean he really taught me the gave me the desire to teach others to bring people in and help them through and not just a one-way thing but it's a learning to two-way communication uh, with individuals but look at what they know and but share what you know and just and it, the, the, some of the the best successes I have I mean I, we have athletes that are out playing ball you know but some of my best moments are seeing clinicians that develop into something beyond what they thought they were because maybe they were we had a little bit of an influence you know we've got clinicians that have been through here from out of out of uh, PT school that are now you know head physical therapists for professional teams they're running big parts of big companies um, athletic trainers the team approach with an athletic trainer to me is just an uh, you know a must if you're going to deal with sports because what they provide is, is such a huge tool to allow me to do what I do and now the athlete to eventually accomplish what they need to accomplish but to have them come in here and obviously learn from us what we do uh, gave me an opportunity to learn what they do and just made me a better overall uh, therapist as it comes to sports so you know I've had the great uh, athletic trainers that have given me opportunities with with teams um, you know that have just been huge mentors for me just from the relationship to work together to build something beyond you know what I could do myself, and uh, and then also develop in ways that they advanced. And as kind of we all kind of are learning together, we're kind of moving up this chain. And just to have them now kind of around the world, um, even over from Japan, they sent some people over for us to train. And just to see them now where they're at is um, just you know you feel like you're the the father, the son's just uh, you know done very well, and and that's that's really exciting. Yeah, that, that is so cool. And I love some of the things that you highlighted in there, especially with Ola. I, I, without fail, it always comes up in a lot of these podcasts, people that have been super successful in physical therapy, is the desire to continue to learn, to not think that because they've reached some type of status or been really successful in the field that they know everything. It's the consistent wanting and desire to learn and gain that knowledge. That's something that has been such an eye-opener to me that w that is the single most, like most... Um, repeated line, I guess, in every episode. And I, a lot of times I don't even have to say it. It's, it's the guest that comes on and shares that, the desire that they wanted to learn, they continue to seek learning, and that's such, I think, a, a game changer in what makes a, a good to a great clinician is that desire to learn. And so thank you for highlighting that. I just Every time it just reaffirms to me that desire that we need to keep gaining that knowledge, keep learning. 
Um, and I love that you highlighted the aspect of being able to have that have that um, healthcare like what is it? I forget the exact word, but like working together in a healthcare team and having that confidence with physicians to be able to to ha- do what you do best and, and have that confidence. I think that's so valuable. In the business side that you said, that's something that a lot of us, like you said, we're, we can be great clinicians and learn those skills, but a business is something totally different. And to be able to gain those specific attributes and, and skills and knowledge are, are unique and we need to learn those things if we want to succeed on the business side, just like the clinical side. Um, that was that was awesome to have all three of those be such big mentors in your life. Um, with that, what would you recommend for young clinicians who are seeking to gain that knowledge, to gain that experience, that are looking for mentors, what are some of the things that you recommend them to do to be proactive in? Well, I, I think, you know, it, it's going to be unique to everyone. You know, I don't expect everyone to have the same, obviously, path that I was on and because um, everyone's unique in kind of what they want to do and what they're going to find um, their their passion is. Mm-hmm. But if you have a passion for something, I would just say make sure you find, you know, there's a lot of courses out there, these one or two uh, day courses, web courses now with everything. I think they're, they're good for knowledge. I mean, I think people, the young clinicians are so smart. I mean, they know more than I probably, I could ever think of knowing. Um, their knowledge base is huge, but their, their clinical experience is still, is still new. And I think that's the, the key is to find that passion that you have and then find the, the, the ability to get educated clinically. And it takes sacrifice. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, it's going to come to you. You're going to have to find it and you're going to have to go. I mean, we flew to San Diego for two years and that wasn't, you know, and, um, that wasn't something that was easy, you know, it wasn't something that someone provided for me. Um, I wanted to do it and it was just, you know, was something I, I, I desired to do and, and made it happen. But I think you just got to find that and, and you're going to have to go, you know, and, and seek it and, and get that clinical experience to master that. And I don't care if it's a vestibular program, a neuro program, and, and just make sure it's a comprehensive approach and it's a consistent thing, you know, that you, you desire. So, you know, you're seeing a lot of these, you know, residency programs and, and fellowship programs. And um, I, I think those are just good paths to be on, but, but have a vision and then just stick with it and understand it's, it's not gonna be easy. I know it's hard coming out of school. Um, you know, you got student loans, you've got all this kind of stuff that you're trying to, you know, you've been, you know, and, and the other thing is, you know, you're, you're already a doctorate program, what more are that someone gonna offer you, you know, um, from a, but you don't do it for the credentials, you do it for kind of your, your personal growth and your kind of clinical skill, that's a, a, a skill that you'll have for the rest of your life. And it'll take you down a path of, of satisfaction and, and being able to treat patients and see the benefit that comes from that. So uh, I think finding a good clinical program that's within your, your vision um, of what you want to do, whether it be orthopedics or neuro, and just make sure it's clinical and not just, I mean, we can learn a lot of things, but we got to be able to put it to the test. And there's got to be someone that holds us accountable. And it's, it's humbling to be held accountable for a skill, you know, in front of an instructor that's way better than you are. But you know what? That's where you're, you're going to grow. And that's what you need to put yourself into. And so there are still some of those programs out there. They're, they're harder to find, and they're, but there's things you just have to you know, you have to pursue and, and take that path. Yeah. And develop yourself clinically before you take too big a step moving forward. I always say, you know, make sure you, you work on that first and then 
you know, the business development and those kind of things. If I was to look at, gosh, should I come out of school and go into private practice, you know, or should I come out of school and work for someone? I say, you know, go out, go out of school and work in the best environment that allows you to develop clinically. And then the rest of the stuff will follow. I mean, if you're, if you're doing good work and um, you're developing, you'll, you'll have a successful career in more ways than one. That's perfect. Thank you for that. And I think that's that's so important to, to really find, like, if you have that vision, then you can kind of backtrack and figure out how you want to build mm -hmm. it. And so that's that's really, really important to, to get early on. And I know, like, we don't know what we don't know, obviously, coming out of school, but to try to figure, okay, see people that you want to be able to get to and, and reach to that level and figure out, okay, how can I build back to be able to create my first step? And then we continue to grow and progress. Um, with that, yeah, there's a couple of questions that I always like to wrap up the podcast with, and it's already been flying by already. Um, but I wanted to go ahead and, and ask you those. Um, and we've, we've highlighted a lot of things already, um, but if there's anything that comes to mind or like the big aha moment, this is the question that I like to ask, is what is something that you'd wish you'd learned sooner in your career that once you found that, that connection there, it was like an aha moment that was like, man, this has accelerated my career so much, I've really grown from this if I could have only learned it sooner. Obviously things happen for reasons, but is, is there anything that come to mind that was really that aha moment for you? Well, there's a couple things that I, I really realized quickly. You know, I went through a lot of education and I thought, gosh, you know, I've learned a lot, I know a lot. And then um, the real, when I started teaching, when I took that next step and Ola asked me to start teaching with him, which I thought was, you know, I'm like, gosh, I, I, what do I know compared to you? Um, but to me, it realized again, it opened up another door. So I think teaching, I, I, I quickly told my students, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you what I know, but I'm going to tell you something. You're going to learn some things from me, but I'm going to, by, by teaching, I'm going to learn 10 times more than what you're going to, because, you know, an hour lecture would be eight hours of work, you know, and you're just kind of putting that together. So that was a really, so doing that for, the, you know, 20 years has really just helped me continue to grow. and. You know, when you hear something the first time, you sometimes go, gosh, that's really confusing, you know, kind of like what just went through with this exercise <laughs> progression, but I realized that too, and, and looking at Ola talk about upper cervical biomechanics, I'm like, there's no way I'll ever understand that, but when you teach it, I one, two things, I got to see him teach it more and more, and uh, I then realized, okay, yeah, um, that was, that was great, you know. Um, but ultimately, I think the big thing for me was I wish I would have learned earlier is how important a patient relationship is with the clinician. Uh, how important that is. Um, you know, patients don't know what you know, and you're not going to sit down there and explain to them, you know, the Holton curve and all that kind of stuff. But you have to develop that relationship from that first contact. And once I realized that sometimes people don't care, you know, we heard this over and over. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I, I kind of slough that off a little bit. I'm like, I don't really care if they like me. I'm going to get them better, and that's all I need to do, you know. But then I realized, you know what, so many of them got better. And it was the, it was the, it was the patient relationship and the, and the experience that they had. Now, we're not going to get all of them better. But I soon realized if they have a good experience, they're probably going to come back, and they're going to refer someone else to you. And, and it's going to be a positive thing in their life. So... With that being said, I wish I would have learned just that how important that was um, from from the beginning, and it's a hard thing to develop. You know, it's kind of like you know we we all this knowledge and this clinical skill, you know, uh, being able to relate to people. And and if someone says, "Gosh, you know, 
should I go into physical therapy? I'm like, well, if you like people, all types of people, then you, it'll be great. If you don't, it's not the profession for you because you know they're not going to fit your personality. You're gonna, you need to get to know them, and you got to find some way to connect with them early on, whether it be an interest that you have no desire for, but they are passionate about. You just got to find that little connection, and then once they've connected. It, it, I think it opens up their mind that that they're going to get better, and that is is an ultimate, you know, healing tool. Is a, a lot of that uh, the mental side of that? Mm -hmm. No, and that's honestly those two I think are are great nuggets of wisdom right there. I mean, like you said, physical therapy. Yes, we can we can have the the, the skills and uh, and all of those things, but being able to connect with them and really have that patient buy-in is so vital for us to be able to be successful. If they don't believe in and you as a clinician and and the value that you provide but if they know that you're invested and that you care they're going to be willing to do that extra sacrifice to do those things that otherwise they may not have that same desire to do it's trust mm -hmm. it's Very trust yeah that's perfect and yeah like that and then i love they talked about teaching i think that is when you teach something you have to know it you can't just just spit it back you can't just regurgitate it you really have to understand the intricacies because that person's going to ask you those things. And so, yeah, getting those reps, I think, are super, super valuable. Um, and, yeah, just to, to wrap up, is there any other additional information or words of advice you'd like to share? And if someone is interested in talking with you more, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Well, I can, you know, um, gosh, there's a lot There's a lot, lot to share. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, the we kind of talked about the thing I say is, you know, for, for therapists, uh, you know, don't let things get in your, your roadblock you from developing clinically. You know, don't sit in a situation where um, you're frustrated with, you know, why things are not happening. You know, go out and seek knowledge and don't expect someone else to, to provide it for you. I mean, I think we get in companies sometimes and, you know, just come from my experience, we say, gosh, if they don't pay for it, I'm not going to do it. Well, you're not doing it for, for that. You're doing it for yourself. So find that out. Get a vision for yourself and really make sure you enjoy what you're doing. You know, work to me is is not work because... I'm doing what I love to do. Now it's frustrating and you know it can be grinding like anything and don't get me wrong you know I have my days where it's like gosh you know but at the end of the day I look back and go gosh you know um, I like what I do and it could be anything but I like what I do you know and uh, so I think just make sure you're you're in that situation and you're not just doing something in, in, as a job mm -hmm. you know make it a profession and, and something that you have passion for when you find passion you know, go for it. Don't let your failures get you down. Take them as opportunities to learn and to grow and to realize that, gosh, you know, the next time I'm going to be better, we're all going to fail. And don't be afraid to fail. That's probably a big thing. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't say, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to take that next step because I'm uncomfortable and I might fail. Don't be afraid, you know. You just have to take that step and, and, and develop. You know, um, you know. Obviously, you don't do something you're not you're not qualified to do. But you know, when you learn a new manipulation, sometimes it's hard to say when am I going to use that on a patient. And a lot of people come home from these courses and they never use it because they're they're too they're too scared to fail on it. I'm not good at it. Well, that's how you get good. You know, you you, you practice. You you know, that's what family members are for. You know, they beat them <laughs> up. Um, and, but but develop that way and, and become something that you know you're 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 proud of. But again, and, and never sit back and saying, gosh, I'm I'm good enough. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, there's always there's always something that can improve and um, just continue to drive yourself and and um, and I think you know you'll 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 find things happen. Don't lock yourself in a in a, in a pathway because 
more than likely your career isn't going to turn out like you thought. And that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. You just got to kind of go with some things and go with some opportunities and, and uh, just just work hard and, and, and just you know, be confident. There we go. Yeah, thank you, Keith. That was a lot of, of golden nuggets throughout, a lot of words of wisdom there. Um, and yeah, if someone's interested in talking with you, what would be the best way for them to contact you? So my email, um, kkpt at cox.net is probably the best way to get a hold of me. And um, as long as I have that email address, I keep it pretty simple. I got that, you know, advantage of being older is you kind of get back when they're, when your email addresses were, were a lot uh, easier to work out. So that's probably the easiest way to just, just text me um, or email me and uh, let me know what you're, what you need. And, and if I can help you, uh, I will. I don't pretend to know a lot, but I know people that do know a lot and that's probably, something I can maybe direct you in the right direction. So, Okay, perfect. Keith, thank you again for the for coming on the podcast and sharing everything um, from a cl- like clinician side as well as just the experience that you've had and, and kind of helping young clinicians get on that path. I think this is a really valuable episode to be able to go back and listen to multiple times. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.